Welcome. Welcome to this week's uh, Think Jewish. And this week is Parshas Nusso, the second Torah portion in the book of Numbers. But uh, we are all already within that Shavuos arena. So this, uh, this class is going to be focused on Shavuot, on the concept of the Torah, how it was given, and we'll soon discuss this. The title is Black is Beautiful. The Beauty of a Soul in a Dark Place. Today's class is uh, sponsored in honor of a speedy recovery of Avigdor Akoyen Ben Rivka. May he have ben a Rachel. Ben Rachel. May he have a speedy recovery. Okay. So before we get into the uh, the actual class, I have to start with an actual introduction. And this introduction is a general introduction which is important for all concepts of Kabbalah and Hasidus and a lot of how we approach the Torah through the eyes of Kabbalah and Hasidus. So this is, serves as an introduction to this class and for many other classes. I want to introduce you to the binary code. Those of you who deal with computers know that the binary code is when you have the text and the instructions of the computer is working in a binary digits system, which basically means that they have what they call a, what was it, bit string. They have a bit string, which means that you have a whole bunch of digits which form any specific letter, any specific um, instruction, but no matter how fancy and how complicated that string is going to be, it's only made up of two digits. It boils down to one and zero. That's your binary code. So what I'm going to suggest today is to understand that this binary code exists in the world of Kabbalah. The entire Kabbalah approach to creation is that the entire creation is all about the binary code. So when we talk about these two digits, one and zero, I'd like to say to you in the famous immortal question of William Shakespeare in Hamlet, it all boils down to be or not to be is the question. So we have the one, the zero, to be or not to be. And now that concept of the zero and the one and the to be or not to be is the exact binary code, which according to Kabbalah, the entire universe works on. The zero and the one. In the words of Kabbalah, the binary code is explained as yesh and ayin. Yesh means somethingness, that would be the one, and ayin means nothingness, which would be the zero. So you have the yesh, the to be, and the ayin, the not to be. In the language of Hasidus, where we talk, we talk more in the verb of service to Hashem, rather in the noun expressing the anatomy of the entire evolution from the infinite to the finite. So in the language of Hasidus, we say yesh and bitul. What does the word yesh mean? Yesh means, once again, that something. It's that self-identity, while the beetle means humbleness, 
or shall we use for tonight the word transparency? So everything in the world, everything in the universe will divide in the Kabbalah language of three categories. There is Kedusha, which means holy. There is Klipat Noga, which in English is going to translate into mundane, neither holy, neither impure. And then you have the impure. What is the definition of these three? It only works in the binary code. How many ones? Something. And how many zeros? Nothingness. When we say the word holy, what does the word holy mean? When we talk about a person, oh, he's a holy person, or she's a holy tzaddikis, what does that mean? How can a human being or any creation be holy? Holy is God. That's it. So how do we refer to places as holy? A holy site. How do we refer to objects as holy? You have the tefillin. You have the mezuzah. How do we refer to people as holy? We say the word of saintly memory. What does that mean? How do we refer to people as holy? So the answer is that the only definition of holiness that ever exists is God. So when we refer to an object as holy, we're talking about its transparency to the divine light within it. That's all it means. When we talk about mundane, for example, kosher food, Kosher food is not holy, but kosher food is not impure. According to Kabbalah, the two signs that God gives us for kosher animals, kosher species, the spliff hoofs and the chewing the cuds, or when it comes to fish, fins and scales, it's just a way to let us know that this doesn't come from the impure. It's mundane. So you could eat it. Now what's going to happen to that is going to depend how you eat it. If you're eating it with gluttony, or you're eating it to have energy to serve God. Do you have people, poor people at your table? Are they sharing the meal, your meal with you? Or is it all about me, 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 me? But the species itself is mundane. What does mundane mean? Mundane means that the vessel does have some transparency, but it also has some coarseness. Just to give you the example that I was taught when I was learning about this from my teacher, he brings down that if you ever realize that an egg has two layers to the peel. There's the thick peel, and then there's the membranes. The membranes you can see through. The thick white shell, you can't. Membranes is klipa noga. Klipa means that it is a covering, but noga means light. So there is a covering. It's not total transparency, but it's see-through. That's mundane. That you can elevate. Then you talk about the impure. The impure is something that the husk, the, ve the vessel, is so coarse, it allows for zero transparency to the divine light. And that's the ultimate egocentrism of I. Pharaoh said, who is God that I should listen to him? This is my forest and I created myself. That's the ultimate impurity. So it all boils down to I or transparency. Yesh or ayin. Yesh or bitl. One or zero. To be or not to be. One more step in this direction. It's not just three. 
each one of these categories have layers upon layers upon layers. For example, when we talk about the holy, if you remember every day in prayer, you mention three different types of angels. When you say the Kadosh, 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 Baruch, Vod, Hashem, you mention over there the Chayot, you mention the Ofanim, and you mention the Srafim. There are three different levels of angels, one higher than the other. What makes one higher than the other? It sounds like to be or not to be is black or white. So like the computer, it depends on how many ones and how many zeros. So it's all going to boil down to two main factors. Factor number one, how great is the light? Factor number two, how coarse or transparent or refined is the vessel? So even angels, when you study Maimonides, even angels have what he calls a body, that means the vessel, and we have the light, which we refer to human beings, refer to as the soul. So basically, there are some souls that are more luminous than others, and then there are some bodies that are more refined than others. And that defines this entire concept of holy, mundane, and impure. So you have light, and you have darkness. Now, in, obviously, it's not just one or the other. The whole spectrum of that is all about the Kabbalistic binary code. We're going to take it a step further since we're talking to the advanced class here. Where does this binary code come from? Where does the Kabbalistic binary code come from? How did they all of a sudden become a yesh and an ayin? A to be and a not to be. So let's let's talk a little bit about creation. And this really is Timpson 101. This is not the long version. This is really Timpson 101. Timpson means contraction, as you'll soon see. What is the first letter of the Torah, my friends? The first letter in Genesis, Bereshit. What's the first letter, Bereshit? Bet. How does a bet look? A bet looks like a backward C. So to me, I'm holding my hands like a C. But to you, this should be looking like a backward C. So that means that the first word, the first letter of the Torah is telling me what? As what a teacher once explained it to me, it's telling me that what's open for my perception is only from here further. What happened pre bereshis is beyond our understanding. So that's why the word the Torah begins with a bet telling me you're going the wrong way. Don't try figuring out what happened pre-creation. Talk about what happened post-creation. Start with that. Start with understanding the very first verse. What does it mean that there was waters? There was a spirit hovering upon the waters and he created light. That's where perception begins. What happened pre-bet, we don't know. Okay? So let's talk about what we don't know. What is the material of creation? Human beings, we don't create ex nihilo, something from nothing. What do we create? We don't create. We actually only form. We take wood and we use the wood to create a chair, a table. So that means the material is not created by us. Even when we do create material, i.e. plastic, it's by taking other materials and mixing them. But we have to start at Home Depot. That's where it all begins. You have to start with buying materials. Now let's talk about how God created the world. 
God created the world before we had Home Depot. So what is the material of the world? What is the Chomer? What is the world made out of? I understand that there's different levels of forms, shapes, dimensions, levels. But what started? What, what is the first mass, the material? And the answer is that the material with which the world was created is himself. And that's why if you look, if you look into the verse of Genesis, it says, Vayomer Hashem, and God said, and he said, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. That means that the two words, Yehi Or, made up of six letters, those six letters as articulated by God, that is the material from which the world was created. So Yud, Hey Yud, Aleph Vav Resh, pronounced by God, Yehi Or, that is the DNA, that is the material, the mass from which light was made. So that means God made everything of himself. Now, I told you we're doing Tzimtzum 101. When we get a chance one day, we'll do Tzimtzum 102, and then we have a problem. Because God doesn't speak. This entire anthropomorphism doesn't apply to God. What does it mean God spoke and God said? So when you study the next stage of Kabbalah, you'll realize that everything, when we use human terms upon God, it's really telling us the level and layer of divinity from which our human experience happens. So to humans, what is speech? Speech is the outer layer of expression. It's the way I share with you what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. And as you know, you can never fully express what you're thinking or what you're feeling. It's only the outer layer versus letters of thought is the inner layer of expression. So when we say God said, what it's really telling us is, is that the world was created from the external layer of the divine light, which we know as the linear finite light. Versus the circular, infinite. So really this whole concept that I'm trying to share with you is, what is the actual material from which the world was created, it is the finite light of God's divine light. Thus we have the Kabbalistic ruling, which is marvelous. God is everything and everything is God. It's just that simple. If the world was made up of himself, there is no existence, no material other than God then God is everything and everything is God. This leads us to a problem. I introduced to you a binary code. From what we're saying here, there's only a unary code. There's only one. So Kabbalah has a question. How did from one become two? How did it happen that God is everything and everything is God? And then all of a sudden, there's a new paradigm in town. There's the binary paradigm. There's God and me. I need God. I was created by God. But by no stretch of the imagination do I see myself as nothing more than God. 
There's God and me, and I pray to God, and God tells me yes or no. There's a binary code. Where did that happen? If creation was always a unary code, God speaks his letters, which we explained is the expressive, the outer layer of the expressive divine light. So there's God plus God equals God. That is a unary code. How did we ever get to a binary code? How was there ever a yesh and an ayin? How was there ever a to be and a not to be? Kabbalah struggles with this. How did from one become two? And to answer this, we need to talk about the Tzimtzum. Now, I have never found this metaphor I'm about to use in Hasidus, so I'm asking you to please indulge me to be able to stick to the 101 plan rather than the 101, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 plan. Let's keep it short. Remember, this is just the introduction. The way I share Tzimtzum, which helps me understand it and helps me explain it to others, is view Tzimtzum as a one-way mirror. For those of you who really like imagery, see the Bet of Horatius, and it's very simple, right? The Bet of Horatius, right here, is a one-way mirror. From God's point of view, it's a plain, clear, see-through glass. Nothing changed. God is everything, and everything is God. What happened from this side? Creations only see a mirror. Ultimately, they only see the reflection of I. The abstract faith tells me, the mental eye tells me that there's a God. Just like the painting begets an artist, creation begets a creator. But what do I see? Ultimately speaking, Tzimtzum created the binary code. Tzimtzum created the pre-Tzimtzum and the post-Tzimtzum. The pre-bet of Bereshit and the post-bet of Bereshit. And thus, Kabbalah says that the universe, which begins with the bet, by the way, what number is bet? Bet is two. Suddenly, we went from the aleph of echad to the bet of two. There's a binary code. There's a one and a zero. There's a to be and there's a not to be. And what defines this Tzimtzum? Very simple. Before Tzimtzum, there was no such concept of not being absolutely transparent to God. Because everything existed consciously within God. The Tzimtzum created an inside and an outside. Uh, let me take that back. The Tzimtzum created the paradigm for the creation of an inside and an outside. Because in truth, there only exists a unary code. And because it's a one-way mirror, so from God's perspective, there still is only Hashem Alokeinu, Hashem Echad. There's only one. There is no you and I. There's only God. While post-bet, post-symptom, post-mirror, we now have the bet, the two, the binary code. There's a God and there's a me. And now the question is, how transparent can I become to God? How transparent can I become, and I'm not talking spiritual, uh, you know, we're talking about practical. 
Can I stop thinking what I want to think and think what God wants me to think? Let me just give you a very plain and simple, practical, what that means, the thought. I read today, someone sent me a cute WhatsApp that said, worry is you betting against yourself. So you have thoughts of worrying. For the Jew, worry is not just betting against yourself. You realize worry is betting against God. So you're very simple. How transparent are you with your thoughts? Will you embrace that God is taking care of things? And of course, we have to do what we have to do. Or are we going to worry to the point of, no, this is never going to work out. That's it. Time to make, uh, you know, final arrangements. God forbid. So this concept of transparency is very simple. Your thoughts, your speech, or your action, are they driven by our own egocentrism of self-love, my own little anxieties and fears, or is it driven by its transparency to the divine light within? Once you have that, then you're already dealing with some form of relationship to God is everything and everything is God. And thus I live my life to become more and more refined and transparent to the light within. So, that was the introduction. Why is this introduction so important? Because what I'm about to ask you is a very simple question. The verse says about Shavuot, Vayered Hashem al Har Sinai, and God descended upon Mount Sinai. And the question that we're going to ask here is, why did God descend down here to give us the Torah? Why did he not bring us up to him to receive the Torah? And now that you have this entire concept of understanding of the binary code, you understand that there's darkness and there's light. Why would God come down into the world of darkness? Why would God come down, as we're soon going to explain, to the soul he didn't give it to souls as they are in heaven. He gave it to souls that are in bodies. Which basically, we're going to soon explain this from a verse of King Solomon. But basically, God descended into the realm of darkness. Not only the post-symptom, which all spirituality is post-symptom, but even post-post-post-symptom into the ultimate darkness of the physical world. Why? Throw into the mix, if he was going to come down to this world and give it to us down here, why did it have to be in the desert? Why couldn't it be first bring us to Israel, conquer Israel, then go ahead and make Yerushalayim the capital, then build a holy temple on Mount Moriah, and then, not Mount Moriah, on the, on the Temple Mount, and then what to do there is give the Torah there. Let all the Jews gather in the holiest spot of the entire universe. Let the Ten Commandments come down in the Holy of Holies. Why? And that's why I first want to introduce this whole concept of zero and one, the binary code, light and dark, to be or not to be, because that's going to help us understand this whole notion. So we understand the question, and now we begin the answer. Okay, the question's clear. Why did God descend 
into the depths of the binary code to give us the Torah? And why did he not elevate us into the realm of the unary code to be able to give us the Torah? So here's a verse from King Solomon in Shir Hashirim, chapter 1, verse 5. I am black, but comely, O daughters of Yerushalayim. What does that verse mean? Most interpretations, which is the foundation of the English translations you're going to find, it actually uses the word I just read to you. I am black, but. In other words, they see the verse as follows. That even though I am black with sin, remember, we're talking here black as in light versus darkness. Even though I am black with sin, but I am still comely and beautiful with virtues. Right? That's what we're telling God. So the concept of beautiful in the way this is interpreted is in spite of being black. So even though I'm in a state of blackness, I'm black. I have sinned. I have tarnished the luminous whiteness of my soul. But nevertheless, I still have mitzvot. So the beautiful is actually in spite of the being black. Comes along Hasidus and Kabbalah and re reads this entire verse. It does not read it as but and nevertheless rather reads it as the reason because i am black i am beautiful daughters of zion very different so when you simply learn the verse it's in spite of the fact of my blackness my darkness my lack of transparency nevertheless every jew is full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate is full of seeds and therefore we're saying i am black and nevertheless i am beautiful Comes Chassid and says, no, I am black, and that is the reason why I am beautiful. How do you figure? The soul. We're taught that the soul comes from the highest levels. Atzilut. Actually, you know what? Let me back up. Before I get into the daughters of Zion, I talk about the soul. Let me make things more interesting here about this black and being beautiful. We talk about over here a very interesting, the Talmud, the Talmud in, in Tractic Shabbos talks about a very interesting argument that took place between the angels and, and Moses. Moses comes up to heaven to receive the Torah. God told him, Aleh Alahar, come up, receive the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. And what happens? The angels ask, what is dear the offspring of a woman doing amongst us. And God says, because I've brought him up here because I'm giving him the Torah. And what did the Jew, what did the angels say? They start attacking this whole notion. This unbelievable Torah, which was your inner pleasure that lied hidden within you and no eye has ever seen it. And they're going on to glorify the Torah. That you're giving to the immortal, to the immortal human being, the imperfect human being? Give you glory in heaven. Now let's redo that question. Why are you giving the Torah, the ultimate beauty of light, to the world of darkness? Give it to us. We know how to handle it. Look what the humans are going to do. 
And then they question God. What is the human that you remember him so? Why is he the center of your, your, the apple of your eye, the center of your heart? And God turns to Moses and tells Moses, answer them. So there's a whole situation that goes on there. But let's get to the answer. I'm actually going to read you directly the answer from the Gemara. Okay? The Torah which thou givest me, what is written therein? I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Said he to them, Moses said to the angels, Did ye go down to Egypt? Were you slaves to Pharaoh? Why then should the Torah be yours? Again, let's look at another verse. What is written therein? Thou shalt not have in any other gods. Do you want dwell amongst people that engage in idol worships? Why would God tell an angel not to have any other gods? Humans down here that live amongst other humans that are idol worshippers, we have to warn them. Again, what is written therein? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Do you perform work that you need to rest? So again, you understand the flow of this. Let's go further. Again, what is written therein? Thou shalt not take the name of God in vain. When do you take the God name in vain, by the way? An oath between two business people. You got to be careful. I swear to you, and you know where that sentence goes, and boom. Is there any business dealings amongst you? Again, what is written there? Honor thy father and thy mother. Have you a father and mother? Again, what is written there? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Is there jealousy amongst you? Is the evil temper amongst you? And the next thing the Gemara says is, straight away, they conceded. Think for a second what just happened. They were screaming, how can we give the Holy Torah to the world of darkness? So you would expect Moses to stick up and say that the soul is, has much more light than the angels do. But that's not what happened. He tells them, you're right. We are dark. We have jealousy. We have little gray lies. We have white lies. We have pitch black dark lies. We work six days a week. And sometimes the sunset comes just a little too early for my business deal. He's telling, he's telling the angels exactly what they shouldn't want to hear. He's the, the angels are telling God, give it into the unary code. Give it into the world of holiness. Give it into the world of purity. And what's Moses saying to them? He's bringing a proof in the Torah that the Torah belongs into what? Into darkness. Now that we understand that, let's talk about the souls. There's a soul up there and there's a soul down here. What happens to the soul up there? The soul up there, the verse says, an oath the soul takes has I stood before God in total awe, in prayer, in love. What does the soul experience when it's up in heaven? Absolute purity. Absolute light. What happens to the soul when it comes down to the body? The soul itself gets diminished. And on top of the light of the soul being diminished, what else happens? It's stuck into a very coarse body. All of a sudden, the soul has other issues on its head. When it's born, it isn't crying because it lost spirituality. It's crying because it has a wet diaper. It's dying because it's got a burp. It's colicky. Look what we're doing to the soul. So we have the soul of light up there. And then when the soul comes down here, the soul gets darkened. And it lives within darkness. Right? 
Now let's talk about what does it mean that the soul up there has light? What did King Solomon call the soul? Benot Yerushalayim. Does anyone know the history of the name Yerushalayim? The origin. Where is the origin of the name Yerushalayim? The name of Yerushalayim, our sages tell us, was because there were two great people that called Yerushalayim by different names. Malki Tzedek called it what? Shalem. His Shem, Shem was called Melech Shalem. He called it, the, the name of the city was Shalem, complete. What did, what did Avram Avinu call it? By the name Yeru. And then Hashem said, I'm not sticking my nose into between these two giants. I'm just going to put them both together. It became Yerushalem. So what does the word Yerushalayim really mean? It means total awe. When we talk about the soul in Kabbalah, we refer to it as Yerushalayim. The soul in heaven is in total transparency, openness, oneness, unary code, and it just experiences total awe and connection, oneness with God. Now we take that soul and what happens? There's a whole evolution that goes on here. The soul first is in a state of pregnancy. It's in a state of a fetus being within the pregnant mother, which means that the soul itself is part and parcel of its soul. It doesn't have its own identity, and the source's nourishment is its nourishment, just like a fetus. Then we give birth to the soul. Now the soul is no more within its mother source. It stands outside, but connected, nursing. And then it keeps on going down and down and down, evolving from one spiritual world to another spiritual world to another spiritual world. But what's the beauty? As long as it's in spiritual worlds, it's still within the world of light. Then comes that moment when the soul gets pushed into the physical world. And in that physical world, it's pushed into darkness. And now we have the verse Look at how King Solomon uh, lines up the verse according to Kabbalah and Hasidus. The soul down here says, Shkorani, I am black. But because of that, Vinava, I am beautiful. And who is the soul down here talking to? Vinot Yerushalayim. The soul down here tells the soul up there, You're not such a big macher. You look so beautiful up there. I look so black and dark down here. But you should know that my blackness makes me more beautiful than you, Miss Yerushalayim. Again, I ask, how do you figure? So let's talk about this. Let's start wrapping this thing up. What is the beauty of darkness? The beauty of darkness forces you to search for that which you would never search for if you were in light. Because when we're in light, then we become satisfied. We're comfortable. What's there to worry about? I feel God. God feels me. We're hugging. We're holding hands. It's beautiful. But what happens when the soul is pushed into darkness? And now let's go to the question I asked you before. Why the desert? Do you know what the desert stands for in the world of Kabbalah? The desert stands for the ultimate place of evil evil forces that's where the scorpions the poisonous snakes why because the very material of the desert the sand is barren it doesn't produce there is no human civilization 
and it doesn't serve human civilization. The city is human civilization, gardens, fields, even jungles. They all serve the human race. They all serve civilization. So they all have a connection to purpose and to holiness. However, the desert is barren. The desert will not produce or serve. That is, according to Kabbalah, the ultimate darkness. Now, what happens when you're pushed into darkness? When you're pushed into darkness, you suddenly realize that even light isn't good enough. Now you're forced to search for the essence. You're not going to find light in darkness, but you will find essence in darkness. So by being pushed into darkness, you begin to yearn for that which even the angels and the soul above does not yearn for. The soul up there does not feel lonely. It's not looking for a relationship. It's basking in a beautiful relationship. To quote Jim Collins, he wrote the book, From Good to Great, right? He said the biggest enemy of great is good. The biggest enemy of having an essence relationship is having a beautiful light relationship. If you and I aren't fighting, <laughs> we're not going for therapy. It's beautiful. I, we're not really connecting. We're not really having an essence connection. But don't rock the boat. We're not screaming at each other. We're getting along. We take vacations together. So in the, in the realm of light, we cut ourselves short. We live in the binary code, but we live in a, what should I say, a doable binary code. When you're pushed into loneliness, when you're pushed into the pain of darkness, then you're not looking for light. You're looking for that which no one else looked for. You're looking for essence. And that's why the soul down here, in all its pain of darkness, in the desert, that soul tells the soul up there, I am black, but because I'm black, I'm beautiful. Because you just have a relationship with the light. I, in the depth of yearning and loneliness, have sought out the essence. And that is why, according to the world of Kabbalah, just like I told you, Midbar, the desert, is the lowest level, Midbar is the only level which can house God coming into this world and giving us His Torah. So desert is the lowest level of darkness, and because of its darkness, it is the fertile spot for me to know I can't just have light. I need you, God, capital Y. They tell a story. The Alter Rebbe was rolling in the sukkah. The Alter Rebbe, when he would go into deep, deep levels of meditation, he would sometimes go into convulsion. In the sukkah, he was studying and meditating, and he went into a convulsion, and they heard him saying these words, I don't want your Garden of Eden. I don't want your paradise. I don't want your greatness. I want you yourself. That can only come from a place of loneliness and yearning. Because when that water, the current builds and builds and builds and it bursts through the dam, 
Now you're talking about the beauty of a type of raging love from essence to essence that you won't have if the water was always flowing with a comfortable current. So neither the angels nor the souls up there ever had the need because they were never lonely, they were never dark, they were never in pain. And thus, according to Shlomo HaMelech, read the verse now. Shchorani, it's true. Who is he talking to? Benos Yerushalayim. So the soul down here who's shchora, who's darkened, tells the soul up there that's great and luminous, you're right, shchorani, I am dark down here. I don't experience the feelings and the relationship and the consciousness that you have with God. But because of that, vina'ava, because of that, I am beautiful. Because only the blackness can offer me that beauty. Now let's talk about the Torah. What is so special about the Torah? What's special about the Torah is that it's a pre-symptom concept. And therefore the Torah has what nothing else has. Everything else was created by the Word of God. What did I tell you the Word of God means? External expression. What does it say about the Torah? And you shall take unto me, Truma means a, a, a donation, right? When they were building the, the, the temple in the desert. Comes our sages and say, take the word Truma and cut it in half. Torah Mem, the Torah that was given in 40 days. And now read the verse. You want to take me, not just my light, not just my blessings, not just my abundance. You want Li, you want to take me. Study Torah. Because the one thing God gave to Torah that He gave no thing else is His essence. What is the beauty of blackness? That blackness drives you to find essence, not just the comfort zone of light. Now you understand why the Torah, which is the transmission of essence, was given to a soul darkened, in a dark world, in a dark body, in the darkest of all. The barren desert. Telling us that this is not about light. This is not about spirituality. God doesn't need us to do the Torah mitzvot to have light. He has light with the angels. He has light with the souls in heaven. What doesn't he have? What God doesn't have without you and I studying Torah, he doesn't have an essence relations relationship. Because in the world of light, everything lives off the light. In the world of darkness, in the world of loneliness, we yearn deeply. We go beyond light. That word of the Alter Rebbe, I don't want nothing but you, you yourself. And thus the verse, because I am black, I am beautiful. In closing, what is fabulous about American jury and 20th century jury that the other generations throughout our history did not have? Now, if we're going to speak realistically, our level of spirituality is left to be desired. Talk about the previous generations. They were giants. They were spiritual giants. I'm not even talking about uh, previous generations, the time of uh, Hillel and Shammai. I'm talking about as far as close as pre-Holocaust. You had giants. You had spiritual giants. People lived 
around that spiritual giant and they yearned for spirituality. People yearn to do nothing more than to study Torah and to daven. So if we're talking about spirituality, our generation isn't on top of the list. But do you know what statistic tells us? You know what makes our generation the greatest generation of all previous holy spiritual generations? Dare I to say, including the generation of Moses and the people in the desert. Do you know what we're outstanding in that no other generation ever had? Jewish philanthropy. There has never been a generation that has been giving the amount of charity to Jewish causes like our generation. And that's a fact. Now let's go back to everything we're saying. So let's talk about this American secular Jew who the spirituality of Torah study and the spirituality of prayer just doesn't talk to him or her. They just don't connect with spirituality. Call it a state of darkness. It doesn't make them feel Jewish. Coming to a class or sitting in a room holding some book, even if one side of the book has English, just doesn't make them feel Jewish. But talk to these same souls of darkness, quote-unquote, and you will find that they are the ultimate souls of beauty. Because when it comes to caring, physical essence caring, you know what the essence of the physical world is? I'll give you a hint. It has printed on it in God We Trust. The physical essence of what makes society and the physical world tick is money. Now, these same people who are not looking for a relationship with Jewishness and with God through spiritual Torah study, through spiritual prayers, they are the ones who stand in the forefront, not just of our generation, but of the entire history of the Jewish people, giving numbers to charity, to Jewish causes, to be able to help support to, to Jewish communities in dire need. They're giving it in unprecedented abundance. Now I'll go back to that verse. I am black. I'm dark. You may not see me in shul. I stop in there for a couple of minutes on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I am dark. Don't waste your time giving me a Torah class. But because I am dark and I am not satisfying my spiritual needs and my Jewishness with just spirituality, I'm looking for essence. Do you know how many people have told me, Rabbi, just tell me, how much do you need to make it happen? Here it is. Thus we're understanding the ultimate beauty of the Torah being given in this world. If it was only about Torah study and prayers, it could have happened up there. But to go find Jews when the economy is difficult, that have no spiritual quote-unquote needs, but they have an essence need of Jewishness. They have an essence need of giving charity. That's what keeps the Jewish people alive. These are the forerunners. These are those who can truly say to God, I am black, but because of that, I am beautiful. People, thank you.